trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i'm your humble host coach jason coop and this episode of the podcast is about protein for ultra runners and is with a true trailblazer and pioneer in nutrition research that is dr jose antonio he has been at the forefront of nutrition protein, and supplement research for over 30 years. He was the lead author and primary catalyst for how we think about protein in sports today, ranging from bodybuilding to strength training, power sports, and even in endurance applications. Dr. Antonio is also the founder of the ISSN or the International Society for Sports Nutrition. And that is an accomplishment that should not go understated. The ISSN is now a key body in sports nutrition research and information. The papers that they produce are ones that I constantly lean on. And in fact, the podcast that I did, which reviewed their position statement on nutrition considerations for ultramarathon is today the most downloaded podcast that I have ever produced. And I think that that goes to speak to the quality of the research that they produce and put out. Dr. Antonio and I discuss this and the origins of the ISSN and why that organization is relevant today. And ultimately, we get to why protein is important for ultra runners and how we should consider it carefully, particularly during intensified training volume periods. I hope this podcast inspires you to look at your day-to-day nutrition game plan a bit more carefully and perhaps take in some additional protein for recovery when needed. Now with that as a backdrop, I'm getting right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jose Antonio. First off, it's an honor, um, as, as I was saying off air, um, I, I love being able to put a virtual fa- face, at least, to the names that I've seen across uh, publications. And it's been a just a really joy in actually starting this podcast, an unintended consequence of starting this podcast that I get to talk to people whose work I have been familiar with, not just for a little bit, but no offense, but for a long time in your case, because <laughs> you have been doing this for a long time. True, true story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oddly enough, uh, yeah. I mean, I I tell people, you know, the original uh, introduction to nutrition as an undergrad, and um, what I like to do, and I, I might tease you a little bit with this, but when I teach class, instead of telling them the year I did something, I'll often I'll often quiz my class, and I'll say, you know what? When I was an undergrad in college, that was when Ronald Reagan was president. Does anyone know when that is? And a bunch of 19 year olds are like, who's who? Ronald Reagan? Who is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. they're like, uh, that must be a long time ago. I'm like, well, yeah, it actually was a long time ago. But since you don't know the years, it was roughly in the 1980s when I was an undergrad. So, but yeah, it's, um, you know, I think it's, uh, I know we'll get into this more, but how the ISN was formed, a lot of it really stemmed from how I started out as an undergrad then eventually masters and phd but uh, but we'll get into that we'll get into that well we can we can jump into it right now because i think that will help the audience kind of get to know you and your work a little bit better something that i'm very familiar with but Pete, we take for granted that organizations exist such as the issn and and i say that because i know it's not easy to do at one point something doesn't exist 
And then at another point in time, somebody or some group of people, and you are the somebody in this case, wills it into existence. You made a conscious and deliberate choice, and you might have not known how complicated (laughs) that choice was at the time, but you you made a deliberate choice at the time. So, you know what? I'm going to form this organization for whatever purpose that you decided, decided to have it be at the time. And that's not an easy leap to make. It's an organization that I've leaned on their expertise and their opinions and their position statements and things like that a lot. I saw one that just came out from uh, my my great colleague and good friend, Dr. Stacey Sims. And and, and you were at, you were literally the tip of that spear that started it. So, so the audience can get to know you and your work a little bit better. Like take us through the journey of this, like how did the whole thing actually come into being? You know, it's funny, the tip of the sphere. I like that analogy. It reminds me of the movie 300. I don't know if you remember that movie. It was, uh, it was 300 Spartans against like a million Persians. And I swear to God, I felt like a Spartan when we started this. But it's like, oh, my God, no one wants us to do this. But here, here's sort of the um, and interrupt me if you want, if, you know, if some of the details seem to be awry. My undergrad degree was in biology because, again, this is when in the 1980s, Reagan was president. Exercise science it kind of was around. Yeah. Not really. I mean, most people who like the sciences either went biology, chemistry, physics. And I'm thinking, you know what? Physics kind of hard, maybe too hard for me. Chemistry. Oh my God, that's hard. I can do biology. <laughs> I think I can do biology. So I was a bio major. Uh, my father was a physician. He's like, why don't you be a doctor? Well, the reason I don't want to be a, a doctor or a physician is I don't like being around sick people. He's like, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> you don't want to be a physician. So I was thinking, okay, I'm going to be a bio major and I love exercise. So I'm going to study exercise science because remember, this is the 1980s sports nutrition or sports supplements as a field of study was pretty much non-existent, yeah, like, right. non- yeah. especially supplements. In fact, yeah. if you said you wanted to do research in supplements back in the eighties, they look at like, look at you like you had three eyeballs. Like yeah. why that's, that's not a legitimate field of inquiry. So I got a bachelor's degree in biology. I went, that was at the American University. Then I got a, a master's degree in exercise physiology at Kent State University, where I, I learned under Peter Lemon, who did some of the original protein work. And this is back in the 80s still. And even back in the 80s, most people who worked in the allied healthcare field, allied health sciences, so you could, physicians, dietitians, even most scientists, viewed protein as, ah, you eat too much, it's bad for you. And I'm thinking, doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. So again, this is the 1980s. I start my PhD in the late 80s, finished in the early 90s. I got my PhD basically in muscle physiology. You're thinking, why didn't I get in sports nutrition? Because at the time, sports nutrition was not a legitimate field of inquiry, which seems odd. Like to college students now, they're like, well, that's weird because it seems like every college has a sports nutrition course. You're right. (laughs) Back in the 80s and 90s, they didn't exist. So yeah. that's what's so weird about this, this category. So I get my PhD and um, the first job I actually had was, uh, this might jog your memory. I was the chief science, um, I guess the the chief science guy for the Weeder publications. I wrote for Muscle and Fitness. I wrote for Flex. Um, geez, it's, I'm blanking. There were so many magazines I had to write for, but really for two years I was a professional writer because I liked the category of mixing exercise and nutrition. 
These okay, are the so, original for for people who aren't familiar with this. These are the original like Jim Bro magazines. With yes. all due with all due respect to your writing, that's the category that they were in. Yes, it is total Jim Bro. And in fact, I purposely did this because one, I learned that most scientists are really poor in communicating with non scientists. So I, I I said to myself, I need to learn how to write in a manner that a non scientist can understand. Because who cares? If all the science is great, when no one knows what the hell you're talking about. So that was actually a conscious decision. I want to learn how to write for the consumer. And also during this time, I actually uh, was a, um, a frequent uh, guest and host of a, a fitness um, radio show in Dallas, Texas. Uh, a guy named Larry North. He ran a bunch of gyms there. And and I don't know if you know Larry. I know but, Larry. Uh, I grew up in Dallas, so I've met him several okay. times. Yeah. So it's funny because I'm thinking, okay, I... I can speak science talk, but I need to learn how to speak in a language that non-scientists will understand. So literally out of the blue, and again, this is before the internet, I had to call Larry up. Larry doesn't know who the hell I am. So I call Larry up. He's at his gym. I'm like, hi, Larry. You don't know me. I'm a grad student here. I know a little bit about exercise. Hey, can I be on your show? He's like, uh, okay, sure. Why don't you just come on this weekend and be a guest? I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> so again, I had never been on radio. So I'm like, oh, this will be fun. So I went on there. Actually, he thought I did a good job. So I started being his substitute host when he'd go out of town. So this is kind of a long-winded explanation until we get to ISSN. So during this time, I'm trying to teach myself how to communicate with non-scientists because I think that's one of the skills that they do not, and to this day, they still don't teach scientists that. They're really poor at communicating with non-scientists. Um, but my interest, even after all this schooling, my interest was always sports, nutrition, and supplements because I always had a fascination with, um, mainly I learned this from my uncle. He was a bodybuilder. He would take all this stuff and he's like, oh yeah, this will help me put muscle on. This will do that. Whether or not there were science at the time, which there really wasn't. I was like, wow, this is super cool. Uh, so what was the first supplement that actually had some science behind it? This is the early 90s. Do you remember? Probably either protein or creatine creatine yeah. protein a little bit but when creatine hit the scene yeah. in the 90s it was like huh yeah this is kind of a game changer and throughout the 90s as the data starts to accumulate people are like hmm this creatine stuff there might be something to sports supplements but not so fast so uh one of my colleagues jeff stout he's at the university of central florida now I said, hey, why don't we give a talk on supplements at the American College of Sports Medicine? This was roughly late 90s, early 2000s. And he's like, sure, but I don't think they like supplements, which is true. They didn't like supplements. Um, so we gave a talk and <laughs> there was about 300 people in the audience. And apparently there had never really been a quote supplement talk at ACSM. So we were the first supplement talk, uh, the first supplement talk. Half the audience loved us and half hated and i mean hated us wow. in fact the the half that hated us once we were done talking they went up to the microphone and they just started verbally beating the crap out of us I, and i ain't kidding i'm like whoa <laughs> what did we say i mean these people it was um, i remember this one particular quote from a scientist i forget what school he was at he basically said this and i paraphrase you guys have no business giving a talk at this conference and i'm thinking wow that's that's really open-minded yeah. <laughs> really open-minded um and that's the kind of treatment we always got when it came to supplements and in fact got so bad at the time i was at university of delaware the department i don't know if it's the department chair because again this is a while back said you know what it's probably a good idea that you guys that you don't do any research in supplements i'm thinking wow that's a very non-scientific position to take so I'm like, okay, this is really crazy. Why are so many people anti-supplement? 
And then fast forward, um, uh, a good friend of mine, Doug Common, he he uh, organized a workshop, a pre-fancy workshop. So this was at the time American Dietetic Association. I think it was 2003. He organized it. And the theme was sports nutrition. And so myself and maybe 10 other people gave talks on sports nutrition. It was the same 10 people who always talk about right. sports nutrition right. because really nobody was willing to. And um, it was at that conference that one of my friends and colleagues, Susan Kleiner, she's a dietitian up in the Northwest. Uh, it was at a dinner uh, where all of us were there. And she said, you know what, why don't we start our own organization since it's always the same people giving a talk on sports nutrition. We're going to make our own club. <laughs> right. It, was, well, it's, it basically would have been a club because it's like, what, like all 10 of us? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. keep in mind in the early 2000s, hardly anybody anyone did research in sports new sports yeah. supplements in particular like nobody in fact even to this day you go out to 2023 i'd say in the world in the world there might be 50 to 100 scientists who quote do sports supplement or sports nutrition research it's it's still a very niche category um but it's a category that everyone loves so so you know I, we all thought about it myself susan kleiner uh, Douglas Kalman, um, Rick Frieder, he's at Texas A&M, um, and Anthony Almada. So we met, at, oddly enough, at the ACSM conference that following, I think, later that year. And we basically said, okay, man, let's start something. We'll call it, you know, I, I was thinking the American Association of whatever nutrition. I'm like, okay, that acronym is ASSN. Okay, that won't yeah. work. Uh, we don't like that acronym. So we came up with ISSN, International Society Sports Nutrition and basically myself and Doug Kalman, basically, we said, we'll just do it. We'll run the business part of it. I'll take the lead. Doug will be second and we'll figure out how to do it. <laughs> and then after the meeting, I'm like, Doug, so how do you actually do this? I mean, I've never, I've never run an academic nonprofit. N never. I wouldn't yeah. I'm like, how do you start this? He's like, well, he's like, I don't know. Let me talk to some people. So basically Doug talked to some people who organize conferences and he says, well, these are the logistics of it. We're probably going to lose money for a few years. I'm like, oh, okay, well, we lose money. There's only one way to find out if this works. So um, so before we launched our first conference, just remember two key things stuck in my head, and this is how we were treated. At the, uh, I tried to join SCAN, which is a subgroup of the American Dietetics Association, now rebranded as the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. When I tried to join them in the early 2000s, and this is despite the fact that I gave a talk at their workshop uh, and I donated money. I wanted to join. Why? I want to network. And they're like, mm, no, you're not a dietitian. You can't join. I'm like, well, sure. Yeah. Wait, so you have to be a dietitian to join an organization just because you want to network. They're like, yeah, you do. I'm like, okay, well, that's really parochial and weird. Um, <laughs> and then American College of Sports Medicine, I was told uh, myself and Jeff Stout, at a cocktail function at ACSM. I was told by the president of ACSM, the president, the top. She said, uh, gentlemen, if, and I paraphrase, gentlemen, if you wanna have a career, don't do research in supplements. No. <laughs> and at first when I heard that, I was yeah. like, did she say don't do research? I'm kind of talking to myself. And later on, I, I talked to, I looked at my friend, Jeff Stout. I said, she actually said not to do research. I mean, coming from a scientist, that is, well, it's bizarre, but also quite dogmatic. So that's how two organizations treated us who had an interest in sports nutrition and supplements. So that's the reason that was sort of the impetus for why we started ISSN, because other organizations that, quote, talked about nutrition, 
did such a really poor job. And, 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 and honestly, the zeitgeist of the time was very, very anti-supplement. I mean, if you mention the word supplements, like, yeah, you guys, all you do is promote supplements. It's just a bunch of meatheads who take pills and, and <laughs> like protein powder and all this other stuff. And I'm thinking it's to me, I think what's the most insane part is the dogma that we ran into just absolute dogmatic attitude of scientists saying that it's not a legitimate field of inquiry. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, everything should be inquired. Everything. Yeah. In fact, especially, to me, the, yeah, to especially. me, the most important thing, you know, people ask me, well, what does it take to be a scientist? Do you have to be brilliant? No, you can actually be quite average, uh, you know, but I think a scientist needs to be curious. So you got to like, like wonder about stuff got to be persistent. In fact, if you're curious and persistent, that's most of it, but you got to be skeptical. And right. I'm thinking, how could these people not be skeptical? In fact, they're just saying, no, doesn't work. Don't even study it. And so, you know, I, you know, when I talk to my friend, Jeff Stout and Doug Kalman, I always say, well, um, we lost that battle, but we won the war Yeah, <laughs> because at the end of the day, sports nutrition is a viable category, not only as a field of study, there are now PhD students, doing their dissertation in sports, nutrition, and yeah, supplement. Yeah. And 20 years ago, you would have never seen that. Um, and also as, as an industry, we've introduced or tried to get people in industry to fund research so that instead of just making goofy ass claims about, you know, my product yeah. increases testosterone by 400%. I'm like, you know, maybe you should do a study on your product to actually see if it does before you just make stuff up. You know, so um, that's sort of the long winded explanation there. You know, I left out details because there was a lot going on, but that's kind of what happened. Well, and here, here's the irony 20 years later is that specifically with sports supplements and the longtime listeners of my audience will know that I've been like beating on this drum for maybe, you know, seven out of the last 10 podcasts <laughs> that needs the most scrutiny in today's day and age we need to scrutinize what is coming across our product shelves and what we see in the grocery store and what we see in the sports uh, uh nutrition stores and things like that in our in our and in, in our instagram accounts we need to scrutinize those sports supplements more than the stuff that's been studied for however many years because they're so new because it's so unregulated and because there's the potential for both good and harm both those divergent you know pathways within uh within those sports supplements so it's hard to have that foresight 20 years you know 20 years ago but once again kudos to you for winning the war because i i i can appreciate how starting something like that is not only difficult but is met with intentional deliberate resistance Oh, and yeah. trying a to a lot of resistance and trying to swim upstream in your own field in your own field of study and your own field of practice is not a is not an easy endeavor so kudos to you and 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 thank you from the from the community for actually getting it done oh you're welcome you're welcome it's been a fun and crazy ride but yeah it, it, on, in our first conference before we had it i asked uh, you know doug come and i said do you think anyone will show up and he's like hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. And I think, <laughs> I think that's what made it quote easy for us. We had this attitude like, okay, if we, if no one shows up, okay, we won't do it again. Yeah, it's no yeah. big deal. Yeah. You know, but yeah. you have to try. Yeah, exactly. You have to try. Well, today, today as a kind of a reflection of that, of that success, not that I'm in, not that I should be any barometer of anything, but today, the most downloaded episode that I have ever produced was on your, the ISSN's position statement on ultramarathon nutrition 
that was authored awesome. by Nick Tiller, who's been become yes. a fast colleague of mine, and he and I collaborate on a number of a uh, number of different things. So the I use that as a as as more of a thank you to say that the work actually does reach the people, and it does so in an impactful way as represented by as, as a representation of the downloads would, you know, lead us all to believe. So, so, so thank you for that. Awesome. We're, awesome. We're, I'm glad we're going to ping off of something though. That's a little bit away from the sports supplement side of things. And it kind of goes to like the heart of some of your original research that you've also had a tremendous amount of impact on a number of different peoples. And that's with protein. Ah, you, yes. uh, One you, of my favorite subjects. I know. Well, you alluded to, you're a game changer literally in this, right? Because, because you started studying protein at a time where in some applications, high protein diets were kind of demonized and demonized to the point that we thought that they were deleterious for health, not just for sports yes. performance, but deleterious for health. And you had some of the original, very impactful research that said quite the opposite, that we can do, we can utilize very high protein diets. And I want you to get into how high these very high protein diets are. And they're in fact, not deleterious for health. So take the listeners through that journey as well, because that was something that also was a dogma that you kind of refuted. Yeah, this, you, what's fascinating about this is sort of like ISSN, I actually had no intention of studying protein or high protein diets. That sounds odd because I, I ended up doing a series of studies, but what prompted it was the constant refrain of protein is bad for you, protein is bad for your kidneys, protein is bad for your bones. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. The, the, the evidence for that just isn't there. But I kept hearing it every year, every year, every year. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And even all of my colleagues are like, yeah, we. it's really weird, this bizarre anti-protein stance, which, you know, people ask, well, why is there a bizarre anti-protein stance? Well, I think it originates from the fact that dietary protein as a supplement originated in bodybuilding. Right. I mean, it's bodybuilders really that push this and bodybuilders are on the juice. So it's like, okay, these guys are on drugs. They're also taking protein. It's gotta be bad. Everything's bad. We're just like, marrying it all together. Right. Yeah. We're marrying, you know, <laughs> taking drugs, protein. It's all bad. So what's funny is I think this was around 2013 or 14. I'm teaching a class and there was one student in my class, a pretty large guy always had, and you know, this, he always had his jug of water. And I'm like, what is it with you guys always drinking? What, what you thirsty in the middle of class? And he was always eating too. Yeah, yeah. Like you eat during class, you drink during class. I, I know you're not starving because you're like 240 pounds. And so just out of the blue, I said, how much protein do you eat? And this is what I love about male bodybuilders. And I found out they're the best subjects when it comes to high protein diets. He goes through a Rolodex. In fact, that's a bad analogy. Who knows what a Rolodex is anymore? But he, he goes to a Rolodex in his head and he's like, oh, I consume about oh, 200 something grams of protein. I'm like, oh, that's a lot. So I do calculations in my head. I'm like, well, that's over three grams per kilo. Huh, interesting. So that basically, that right. incident prompted me. I'm like, you know what? Why don't I why don't I do a high protein diet study? Just have people consume two grams per pound, which is a lot. Yes. I've tried it. I've failed. It's a lot. And just see what happens. Don't change anything else. Don't change training. Don't change anything else, but just consume two grams per, per pound. What did we find? Nothing. Body composition didn't change. They didn't get fatter. They didn't get more muscular. Nothing changed. Everyone's like, wow, that's really weird. How, do you, how can you consume 600 extra calories and nothing happens? Well, we know there's a thermic effect of protein. Maybe it inhibited appetite and their dietary recalls may not have been accurate. Okay, maybe, maybe not. So we followed it up because we had we had so many people drop out of that study that we dropped it to three grams per kilo, which is still a lot. That's a lot. a lot. Yeah, I mean, people are like, oh, that's easy. No, that's not easy. Yeah, no. But 
we put everybody, these are all trained college students. We put everyone on a, what I call a traditional bodybuilding uh, program, you know, split routine, chest, shoulders, tries, back, buys, legs, you know, the whole works. High protein diet compared to the control, which oddly enough was somewhat high. Um, when you consume a lot of uh, protein coupled with a change in training, lean body mass gains are the same. Okay. That's kind of cool. It seems there's a threshold. Once you get above it, it's not going to help much. However, they lost more fat, which was the fascinating part. I'm like, wow, you lose more fat if you just jack your protein. Mm-hmm. Now people are like, Oh, well, I think I'll do that. And the, the caveat I always say is, I don't think you understand how hard it is to consume that much protein. Right, it's, right. it's work. And people, yeah. when they started, they're like, holy crap, this is hard. I mean, it's actually hard. Yeah. Um, but the common question we got was, okay, that was a nice two month study. How do you know it's safe? Even though we did some, we did a, we did a comprehensive metabolic panel. We found nothing happened. They're like, okay, two months. Okay. What if we do it for a year? I'm like, okay, well, I decided to get the, male bodybuilders who consume the most. I'm like, Hey, let's do this for a year. They're like, okay, we'll do it for a year. Nothing, no change in liver panel, the kidney function, blood glucose, uh, blood lipids, nothing. And of course, <laughs> I remember talking to a friend of mine, they're like, they're like, watch, uh, get on, uh, in, on Facebook. I'm sure someone's going to say one year's not enough. <laughs> what do you know? Someone on Facebook said, nah, one year, that's not very long. I'm like, oh my God. So I actually convinced these guys, hey, can we follow you up for two years? So two years, the average intake of these guys was about, I think it was about 3.5 grams per kilo. That is so much. High. That is so it much. Is. It is, it, people don't realize how high that is. And after two years, two years, no change in liver function, no change in blood glucose, no change in kidney function, no change in blood lipids, no change. And here's the here's the funny part. The guy who consumed the most, he was over four grams per kilo. Um, he at times got over five grams per kilo. Uh, he loved protein. And there was, <laughs> there was one day he's like, He's like, hey, bro. Um, he's like, hey, bro. That's what he called yeah, me. Yeah, um, <laughs> he's like, check out how much I ate this day. And so he, he sent me his diet log and he was metic- meticulous. I'm like, holy crap, you ate 1,200 grams of protein in one day. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. And he's the guy's ripped. I mean, he's kind of have a cute, uh, a funny personal story because I asked him, I said, you know, what is it with you? You just love protein and training. He's like, uh, he was from Venezuela. He's like, brother, I, you know, I used to be a fat guy. He goes, I'll be honest. I was a fat guy. I was over 400 pounds. I was fat and I was depressed. I opened up a muscle magazine. I see these guys, they work out all the time and they take protein. So he's like, well, that's just what I'll do. I'll work out and take protein. That's cool. And it, it sounds silly, but that basically is what inspired him. And he, to this day, he's 212 to 220 pounds, always ripped, always eating a, a bucket full of protein. And I'll tell you this, whenever I see him, he's always sweating. Because and you, when you're taking that much protein, you are constantly sweating. So we did that whole series of studies. I think it was six. We even did one, a one-year study in women, trained women, showing yeah. it had no effect on bone, bone mineral density. Yeah. And to this day, to this day, I am still reading accounts of protein is bad for your kidneys. Protein is bad for your bones. And I'm thinking, what do you got to do yeah. I mean, it's so maybe you, you, you might have an idea, you know, coming as a non-scientist, you know, sort of taking this all in, but why is there, there's this constant drumbeat of protein, bad, protein, bad, protein, bad. And here's another thing. Think about this, Jason. 
Protein is the only macronutrient that you'll see people arguing online about, um, this is how much you should take. And when you hit that limit, stop. But they never argue about carbs or fat that way. It's only protein. Once you hit, in fact, I have a colleague, once you hit 1.6 grams per kilo, that's it. Anything else is a waste. But they never say that about carbs or fat. It's always protein, limit protein, limit protein. I'm thinking, hey, this is just weird to me. There's a weird cultural bias against protein. Maybe you might have an idea. Well, a lot of it, it in in the endurance well, in the endurance realm, it's because it replaces something else. So in the endurance realm, we tend to use, we tend to think that carbohydrates are king, king, right? They're the king and queen makers. You need to consume as many carbohydrates as possible to try to support your activities and things like that. And the protein consumption, it kind of like it, it replaces or interferes with the carbohydrate consumption. That's the fear that a lot of endurance athletes have. And this is kind of what I want. This is one of the things we can skip to this part that I yes. wanted to get to is when we have athletes that are substituting protein for one of the other macronutrients, either mm -hmm. carbohydrates or fat, should that be viewed as a bad thing? And what happens in an endurance application when that substitution does actually start to take place? Because they only have a calorie budget of so many calories, right? They can only tolerate right. so many or they're trying to restrict their calories in some way or something like that. If that if that protein budget or if that protein budget starts to actually interfere with the carbohydrate and or the fat intake, what actually happens there? And is that a bad thing? This no, this is a great question because um, it's funny. I, my wife is actually a national class cyclist and she takes a bucket full of protein a day, well over two grams per kilo, probably close to three grams per kilo. That is a lot for um, an endurance athlete. I'm going to say that like, like throughout this podcast, that's a lot of protein. <laughs> right. It is. Uh, but she recovers really well. And here's the thing. Okay. Here's, here's where it gets a little tricky because when you say endurance athlete, runners, cyclists, swimmers, I do a lot of endurance stuff. I do uh, stand up paddling. Um, it gets a little tricky because it, it almost depends on the athlete. Now, mm -hmm. I think a mistake is made when people think if I jack my protein, it necessarily is, is you're substituting it for carbs and fat. In fact, I would suggest for the endurance athletes you work with, keep your carbs and fat the same and just eat more protein because yeah. one, you're not going to get fatter on it. Number two, you might actually recover better. So, and this is where, and I think one of your questions had to do with, you know, looking at protein intake as grams per kilo versus like a percentage yeah. of diet. I am not a fan of, you know, anything as a percent of diet, because what you need to look at is, is, is grams per kilo, because at the end of the day, if you're hitting, I tell people, if you're hitting the grams per kilo, let's say you work with a, a runner or a cyclist, I would tell them hit one gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilo, and then just backfill the rest of your diet with carbs and fat enough that you can train hard and enough that you can replenish uh, skeletal muscle glycogen. Now, this is where it gets tricky. How many of these events are actually limited by skeletal muscle glycogen? If you're running a mile, no. Uh, a 10K, no. Maybe a half marathon, maybe a marathon. Maybe if you run the, okay, that, let's go to the extreme. Maybe if you do the bad water 135, are you really limited by muscle glycogen Probably or not. are you limited by food intake? Yep. So it gets really tricky. It's like, I'm not convinced that, in fact, you probably read some of the same papers about carb intake in, in quote, in endurance athletes up to 10 grams per kilo, uh, eight to 10 grams per kilo. I know a lot of endurance athletes in South Florida who are, who get on the podium regularly. None of them are that high. 
In fact, I think they'd be lucky if they were five grams per kilo. So what happens with competitive athletes doesn't seem to match per se what you read in the literature. So even though literature says, you know, I'll get five to eight grams per kilo or up to 10 grams per kilo, I tell endurance athletes, focus on protein, backfill the rest with carbs and fat because protein will help you recover. And then they'll say, well, you know, if I'm in a race, I'm like, yeah, if you're in a race, just consume carbs. If you're a cyclist, teach yourself to consume carbs. Running is a little different because it's kind of hard to, you know, consume carbs while you're running. It depends on the aid stations and whatnot. But for a short race, it doesn't matter. Um, so that's, it's, it's, it's kind of tricky. It's, you know, uh, I was working with a friend who, who did a stand-up paddle from Cuba to Florida. She's the only, she's the second human to do it. Um, first woman to do it. When she said, Hey, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to paddle from Cuba to Florida. I'm like, wow, that's, that'll take a long time. It took her 27 hours. Um, we talked about training and nutrition, but I said, nutrition should actually be simple. Your nutrition is you're going to paddle a lot and you're going to teach yourself to eat whatever you can eat so that your brain stays awake while you're paddling. Because at the end of the day, if your brain dies in the, in the middle of the Gulf, you know, obviously you have a crew with a chase boat with you. If your brain dies, you're done. You're going to quit. So the goal is to keep your brain like, you know, somewhat alert, somewhat cogent. And if it's pizza, if it's pop tarts, I don't care what it is. That's the goal. So I, I'm not one of those who sticks to like the you know, five to eight grams per kilo of carbs. I mean, it's, it's kind yeah, of a nice, you know, sort of, here's sort of the standard we can play around with it, but I think, the focus should actually be on protein because it will help you recover. And at the end of the day, if you're not recovering, the next workout is just going to suck. Well, and here's where we can kind of like get into the ranges, right? So I can remember when I very first started coaching, the de facto amount of protein that an endurance athlete should take just very conveniently worked out to one gram per kilogram. And, th and that's, oh. you know, like 20 years ago, that's where it was. They, they, we would give a range 0.8 to one. Okay. But every it and it's drifted up across two conditions I've noticed in my coaching career. One is time that I've been coaching. So every four or five years when these position statements come out and all the nutritionists and your cohort and things like that meet, just the needle starts to move up to 1.2 to 1.6 and then 1.6 to 2 and okay we're starting to recognize that it's you know that it's more important for endurance athletes and not just a not just a macronutrient that bodybuilders need to focus on and things like that the second the second uh instance is where it's creeped up and this is just more from a professional development standpoint as i have migrated from working with what I would call the traditional endurance athletes, the marathoners, the Ironman mm -hmm. triathletes and the Olympic distance triathletes and things like that into the ultra marathon realm, those protein requirements, even when we normalize it per unit body weight, still, still go up as well. Mm -hmm. Explain to me why I am seeing that over my, over the course of my 20 year coaching career, why I'm seeing this drift <laughs> in protein recommendations going up simply as a function of the time that I've been coaching and the duration of the events that I'm coaching for. Yeah. I think, <laughs> you know, it's funny that, uh, that actually is the evolution of protein intake amongst endurance athletes. Because I remember when I, First, you know, uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, endurance athletes never thought about protein. So no. we're talking you know, back in the 1990s. Yeah. Now, I, I think what's interesting is it's true. Bodybuilders tend to be the ones who push protein. But I've always even reminded even the most competitive strength power athletes that nobody beats their body up 
more than ultra endurance athletes. Nobody puts their body under more stress than someone who's running a long distance, someone who's cycling a long distance. And I, I guess, I don't know if there's such a thing. I've, I've never met a competitive ultra distance swimmer. It seems like you might drown or something, but um, so, you know, the ultra distance running events, like if you're training for the bad water, 135, that kind of training just beats the hell out of you. Now, What's interesting is I almost don't worry as much about their protein intake because I think as a matter of caloric intake, it will actually be high just because the volume of calories they have to consume just to feel normal is going to be high. And a lot of them will actually reach probably one gram per pound just from eating large volumes of food. So for them, I don't worry as much, but the key for them in terms of why protein intakes keep creeping up I think it's an issue of recovery because skeletal muscle damage, you have to recover. Remember, you have immune system cells that, uh, you know, if, if you do any kind of prolonged endurance stuff, you know, people say, is that good for you? Well, good for you. Okay. It, it's kind of a trade-off. Does it depress your immune system? Yes. If you were to race Ameri- uh, 26.2 miles, will you probably, will you get sick afterwards? Yeah. So there's a trade-off here. Technically it's not, you're not doing it for health. You're doing it you know, for other reasons, but it's much better to be someone who runs a marathon than someone who sits on their butt and eats Doritos and, you know, has a BMI of 35. So again, series of trade-offs, but the need to recover, I think is paramount. And I, and I think for the longest time, endurance athletes have been fooled into thinking recovery is muscle glycogen repletion. I'm like, yeah, that's one thing. In fact, that's kind of a simple thing. Replenishing, uh, replacing muscle glycogen. What about your skeletal muscle fibers that are damaged? What about your immune system that's depressed? You need dietary protein to help recovery in those aspects. Well, also the muscle glycogen repletion is a biochemically much simpler thing than all of the other things that you were just talking about that protein does on the muscular side and on the, on the immune side as well. So, and also this, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Also this, if you get, if you consume an isochloric amount of carbs versus carbs plus protein. So let's say uh, it's 1.2 grams per kilo of carbs versus uh, you got 0.8 grams per kilo of carbs plus 0.4 grams per kilo of protein again. So it's isochloric. The carbs plus protein actually might help replenish muscle glycogen better than the carbs alone. So there's that recovery aspect that it might actually even be better for muscle glycogen in addition to skeletal muscle, immune system, et cetera, et cetera. Well, particularly if it facilitates a higher caloric intake and you, you, you don't know this, but I'll spring it on you right now. My, my, my longtime colleague, Kathy Zawatsky, who worked in John Ivey's lab at, over at the university of Texas, did oh, a lot cool. of the original four to one protein or carbohydrate yeah. to protein, uh, uh, research. So her and I have had many, many conversations over this, over the course of years. And comparing isocaloric, you know, strategies to higher protein strategies and things like that. And the thing that drives it the most is the calories. But then if you can get some mix of carbohydrate and protein in, it not only fuels the recovery piece, but it tends it, or it, it seems like it also facilitates the adaptive process. And this is another aspect that I wanted to get your, your take on is should we be thinking about protein in an ergogenic sense in that if you're taking in more protein, you're going to get a higher degree of adaptation from the workload that you're actually doing compared to a lower protein situation. So you're getting more bang for your buck from the workouts themselves. Yeah, well, I think we we have to first define how does an endurance athlete um, adapt to exercise training per se. So there's really two two main things. One, it's at the level of skeletal muscle. So you're dealing with 
um, becoming better at oxidizing fat. You're, you're, you're better at increasing the amount of muscle glycogen that's stored, but also at the central level, the level of the cardiac muscle, stroke volume is higher, cardiac output's higher, and things like that. So to me, the reason that protein is so important for enhancing the adaptive response is, is in a way it's kind of secondary. It's because it's helping you recover. It helps, it affects the way you train the next day. And if you just kind of repeat the process constantly, okay, I'm recovered better, I train the next day. My training might be 1% better. I recover better, I train the next day. Maybe my training again is one or 2% better. So those, those little details there probably don't matter in the short run, but over the course of weeks and months, I think it's critically important for promoting the adaptive response because, because regardless of the athletes you work with, whether they're endurance or strength power athlete, I've always viewed this as if you can recover, then we can beat the crap out of you the next day. If you don't recover, then we got to dial it back, which means the adaptive response will be less, whether you're a power lifter just trying to lift heavier weights or whether you're a, a 10K runner trying to run faster. It's always a question of, I need to get you to recover. In fact, if you take a sport that's much more complicated than, than powerlifting or distance running, take a sport like mixed martial arts. I have a lot of colleagues who work with fighters. They train a lot because not only that train their strength power, they got to train their cardiovascular capacity. They got to train the skill stuff, judo, jujitsu, boxing, whatnot. For them, it's always, we got to get you to recover because if you don't recover, when you spar the next day, you're going to feel like shit. And then your workout kind of sucks. So it's always, how can I get you to recover? And I think that's where protein comes in. It's, it's, I always think of it as recovering. And this is a short sidebar. When people talk about the use of performance enhancing drugs, particularly testosterone and the anabolic steroids, the, the derivatives of testosterone, people mistakenly call it performance enhancing, but it's not. It's a It's a training drug. It helps you recover. If I can get you to recover better, I can train you better. And that's and to me, that's where protein comes in. It's really a, it's to recover now. If you, if you were to run a 10K and you were drinking sugar during it versus drinking protein, you'll run faster with sugar. I know that. But that's in the acute sense. But in the chronic sense, it's a question of recovery. And that's why, you know, anabolic steroids are great. That's why, you know, protein is great. It's, it's a recovery issue. Does this extend, does that protein as a recovery issue also extend to the protein that you should be taking in or can take in during the workout itself? particularly if that workout is long because ultra runners, we have these training sessions that often exceed four hours. There's six hours, they're eight hours. We just did a, a schedule yeah. review in our coaching department of, of people who are training for this 250 mile race called the Coca, uh, Cocodona 250, which is uh, in Arizona uh, about a month ago. And, um, we're reviewing is running or cycling is running, running. Right. I, I, I did it last year. It took 60 some odd hours just as, as perspective. But the training, the training context is, is there are many training sessions that exceed four, six, eight hours in order to prepare for these things. And it, it, in some sports nutrition contexts, we think, we think about ingesting protein during endurance exercise as simply satiety. But you can also view it as helping the recovery process for once you actually stop exercise, starting to fuel that piece of it. So can we view this ingestion of protein during exercise within that light? And like, can we give some generalized recommendations for how much that should actually be? No, you're absolutely right. It should serve as a recovery mode. In fact, um, if you're training that long, four hours, eight hours, 
um, 12 hours a day uh, for some of these ultra endurance events, you have limited time just to eat. Yeah. So with that limited time to eat, you have to get that protein. Even if you have to take a break and drink something, you have to get that protein in to help you recover because the volume of exercise you're doing is so great that unless you get that protein in, I don't see how one, your immune system will recover. I don't see how skeletal muscle recover. Sure. You can maybe replenish my muscle glycogen, but here's kind of the kicker. If you damage skeletal muscle fibers from exercise, it actually becomes more difficult for you to replenish muscle glycogen. So if you can keep skeletal muscle fibers healthy, it's much easier to replenish muscle glycogen. So I think it's a great thing. Um, if, if you're, if someone's training that way, that they have to teach themselves consume, whether it's food, whether it's a liquid shake, they have to consume something during that long training session. Otherwise, I don't know how your body would, would recover for the next day. And what would the recommended bolus be? Because once again, we've got a lot of athletes that are out there, they're going to do a training camp and they're going to do six hours one day, four hours the next day, four hours the next day and over a three day period. And they're thinking about their they're thinking about practicing their race day nutrition. And this is what I, I always have this struggle with athletes that are going through these intensified volume periods where they markedly increase their volume for a short period of time. And we want them to practice their race day nutrition, which is going to be more carbohydrate skewed, right? Because we want to try to get as much, you know, carbohydrate into the system as possible, but yet it's still a training activity. So we want to be able to recover. uh, We want to 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 be able to recover better and also fuel the adaptive process for, you know, on the tail end of it, once they actually recover, once they actually have a time where they can kind of downregulate. So when we're thinking about these longer activities, fueling it specifically for training, what's the, like, what are some good practices to actually ingest protein during those long, during those long activities? Yeah. The way I would look at it is, um, one, I would working with these athletes, I would ask how many sit down meals do you get? Um, if you're training all day, what do you get breakfast and dinner? Is that, yeah, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Okay. So if you get breakfast and dinner and so in between you're doing all this training, I would first calculate what the total protein intake should be for that day. So let's say, let's say you weigh 150 pounds. So the goal is 150 grams of protein. If you could get, you know, 50 and 50 on either end. So 50 and breakfast, 50 for dinner, or it could be 40, 60. So that takes care of two thirds of your protein intake. Now, during the rest of the day, getting 50 grams, well, I'm about to say shouldn't be hard, but it's hard. Otherwise, everyone would do it. Um, Getting the extra 50 grams could be divided into smaller doses because obviously you're not going to get 50 grams of protein in one sitting because you'll just, you know, you'll have to stop and go to the bathroom. But if you could break it up into smaller segments, um, and here's the thing, we don't, there's no data on this. We have data on how much, you know, the max amount of carbs you might be able to consume per hour. Um, but we don't have data on protein. So this is one of those things where each person has to play around with the dose and see how much they can tolerate, you know, at a given sitting, you know, while they're training. And that that's what we find with a lot of athletes during these intensified volume periods is because essentially <clears throat> you hit the nail on the head. They're skipping a meal and they're replacing that meal with sports nutrition products which are predominantly carbohydrate, right? Gels, sports drinks, you know, the bars and things like that. They're predominantly, if not exclusively, carbohydrate. 
So their total caloric intake goes up during the intensified volume period, but yet their proportion of protein goes down because the distribution of those calories is more skewed into this sports nutrition category. And I, yeah. I think that that's a, like a flaw in the whole programming side of things because you, during training in particular, you want more you want more proportion of your total calorie budget to be coming from protein because of the intensified training and because you want to fuel the adaptive and the recovery processes. Right. Yet we typically do the opposite because all we're thinking is, oh, I got to practice my race day nutrition. So I've got to take in three gels an hour, or, you know, two gels an hour, or kind of whatever the the athlete is, has kind of got it in their heads. And, and I, I, I appreciate your perspective on let's just keep it simple two meals and then figure out what that protein count is for the, for the meal that's in between that you're skipping and figure out a way to get that in during the course of training. Yeah. I, and I think this is of course much easier for cyclists than with runners because cyclists, they can carry food or whatever they want to consume. Whereas runners, you know, I assume when you're doing such long events, you have a crew that's following you, right? Oh so yeah. For, for the food. events. Yeah. Yeah. So they can get, so in a way you can, you can be super specific as to what you're consuming when you're consuming it, which helps. I mean, but maybe for some, obviously quote the shorter races, you know, a 26.2 mile foot race, it might be in a way it might be a little bit more difficult because I'm not sure. Are you allowed to have someone give you specific stuff? If you're running a marathon, can someone say this concoction is for runner XYZ is for that the allowed? Elites, yeah, for the elites, they're allowed to get their special concoction at certain at certain points of okay. the course for a mar- for a marathon. For right. an ultra, it's just your crew shows it's- up to the aid station and you can get whatever you want to from them. Okay, okay, yeah, but I think I, I think definitely you know keep it simple. Get your protein for breakfast and dinner, and then you know play around with what you have in between. Figure out what dose you can consume without getting GI distress. Um, because that's how the original studies were done with carbs. It's like, well, how much can I consume? Yeah, how, how much, much can I actually it? oxidize? So I don't know how, how much you consume. You know, I, I tell my wife when she does these super long rides, you know, just get maybe 60 grams per hour. See how you feel. Maybe more will help, but you might get a bellyache. Uh, there's only one way to find out. Play around with it. Yeah, I think this concept of during the intensified training periods, just being mindful of how much sports nutrition product you're replacing your normal caloric yeah. budget with is a really important one. And if, and if anything, I'd like for you to opine on this as well. During these intensified training periods, if you're normally at, let's just say, you know, 1.5 grams per kilogram per day of protein during the intensified training periods, if anything, you should be above that because yes. of the importance of the regenerative process and all of the muscle breakdown and things like that, what would be a reasonable extension of that? So, we, you know, you have a, a normal endurance athlete that's at 1.2, 1.5 grams per kilogram per day. When they go through these intensified training periods, is there a limit to how much they should be increasing that? Or <laughs> is there a reasonable amount that they need to increase it by? It's funny, Jason, my position is that they should be starting at two grams per kilo. <laughs> so, so, so wipe that out to start out with, yeah. let's just start at two. <laughs> I mean, that is their baseline. It should be two grams per kilo. I think that that's reasonable for an ultra marathon athlete, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so to me, well, you know, 1.2, 1.5, I'm like, oh, that's in my head. I'm like, wow, that's kind of low, especially, especially for ultra endurance guys or forget ultra endurance, just endurance people. I'm like, 
kind of low. You you're beating the hell out of your body. And I, I know a lot of them don't view it that way. They're like, Hey, I, I run, I'm, I don't really get sore. And I'm like, yeah, just cause you're not, just cause you're not sore. doesn't mean you're not beating the hell out of your skeletal muscle fibers. True. You're not, you know, putting stress on your immune system. You, you know, 1.2 to 1.5 is kind of low. So, and I know if you talk to, I, I'd say, if you talk to a hundred people in sports nutrition or dietetics, they'll probably be like, yeah, 1.2, 1.5 is good. I don't think that's good. I think yeah. it, you, Put this way, is there any harm to going to two grams per kilo or higher? And the answer is no. From a health standpoint, that's not going to harm you. From a body composition standpoint, it actually might help you. From a recovery standpoint, it'll definitely help you. There's no, there's no downside to it, and that's the thing. But again, what's the caveat? It's hard to do. Yeah, it's just hard to do. Well, so here's the deal. We'll, we'll back it into the real numbers. The official ISSM position statement on this is is 1.6 to 2.5 grams per day. So that that's your you know that's your you know <laughs> your your publication that you have you know some authorship over and things like that that Nick Tiller produced. But my point that I kind of want to try to drive home is is that during these intensified volume phases, first off, just getting that, getting that recommended amount of protein in is difficult. It, it can be yes. a little bit of a chore. That chore has a bigger magnifying glass on it when you are doing these intensified volume phases because of the sports nutrition products you're taking in. And you also should be increasing that, that amount of protein per day as well. And what I want the listeners to try to appreciate is, is about how much do you think they should be increasing whatever their baseline is, two grams, 2.4 grams, 2.5 grams, kind of whatever that is. What's a reasonable shift so that people can start to like get in their mind. Okay. I'm going to go and I'm going to train really hard for three days. Here are some things that I need to do from a nutrition perspective in order to make the most out of it. Okay. I actually try to keep it quite simple. Um, that's actually a question I get from collegiate athletes who might end up, let's say their volume of training is going up for whatever reason, yeah. but it's only for a short period of time. I tell them, okay, if you're recovering well now, uh, again, we're talking about 18 to 21 year olds. So they, of course they're they recover, always recovering but, you know, as long as they're not right. drinking too much. <laughs> right, Exactly. <laughs> um, but I try to keep it simple. I'm like, okay, if, if volume is going up or whatever, whatever, the, if the demands of training are going up, I, t- I keep it simple. I, I say, can you consume just an additional protein shake? Let's say it's 40 grams. It could be a ready to drink. It could be powder. Just do that. And most college kids are like, oh yeah, I could do that. That's simple. I don't even play with numbers that much. I actually just say, find a shake you like. Make sure you consume that in addition to your normal diet. Don't use it to replace something else. Do it in addition. And, and, and from almost all of them, they're like, you know what? Simple advice is advice that's, that's, doable. It's advice that I will comply with. And to me, compliance and adherence, a lot of people don't talk about as much, but yeah, it is critical because we could, you and I could offer the most detailed advice and then someone will look at it like, I don't know what the hell you're saying. Okay. What should I do again? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so what you're saying is you're taking like a unit approach. You're taking like one extra serving, 40 to 50 gram serving. Let's pile that on top of everything else that you're normally doing. I I think that that's a reasonable approach. And to be honest with you, like one of the things that, um, that I personally have changed with a lot of athletes is the, the recovery shake, right? We used to have a 
four to one ratio or six to one ratio yes, or kind of whatever yes. in order to replace muscle muscle glycogen. I've kind of taken the approach is like, you know what, your muscle glycogen is going to be back to their normal levels in 24 hours anyway. Let's just make that whole recovery shake or most of it, at least protein. So let's flip the ratio. So instead of four yeah. grams of carb to one gram of protein, four grams of protein to one gram of carbs, because you're going to take care of the carbohydrate side of it anyway. No, that's actually smart because unless you're doing like two a days or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. you will replenish muscle glycogen if you're eating a normal mixed diet, mixed meal diet. Over the course of 24 hours, it'll be replaced. Um, and I, here's the interesting fact. It's sort of a quick sidebar. Um, when you read the position stands, because I remember when we wrote the protein position stand, the difficulty with these position stands is you have 20 people trying to come <laughs> up with a, a conclusion we all sort of agree with. So we're like, okay, well, I don't really agree with that, but you know what? I'll let it slide. And someone's out. No, this is great. And so you end up with this document that, okay, we, you know, I guess it's sort of like if you're a politician, it's like, give me some of this and I'll give you some of that. So there's sort of this compromise. It's like, okay, within the scientific community, this seems to be reasonable. Now with protein, I was not the only one that felt this. I said, even though that's what the data says, I actually recommend a lot more than our position stand. So you will find people on these position stands who are like, you know what? We know that's what the literature says. However, based on my experience working with X number of athletes, I think we should do this. Keeping in mind that most people, here's the caveat, most people don't even do what we suggest no, in positions. not even close from a protein perspective. I can tell right. you that directly. But having worked with athletes, when we analyze their diets, it's it, it, there's not enough it's protein horrid. in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so when people ask me, because they've asked me about protein, I'm like, but you recommend more than that. I'm like, you're right. I do. <laughs> I mean, I don't want it to be the Jose Antonio position stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's it going to, so, I mean, you're kind of in a little bit of a position to influence this, right? You've been in the industry for a long time. You, you've had influence over me. I don't do research, but you've had influence over a lot of people that actually do research. What is it going to take to, for the Jose position stand to become <laughs> the position stand? Like what research needs to be done to tease that out further so that when the next position stand comes out, it, 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 it kind of shows what is actually going on from an athletic perspective. Well, I think there's a, there's a convenience factor and, or maybe a compliance factor where it's really difficult to get. And let's face it, most of these studies are done in college students because that's who we have access to. It's actually hard to get them to consume higher protein diet over the course of weeks or months. It's just hard. And so you're not going to see a lot of these kinds of studies. And uh, I think that's probably the, the biggest, I guess, hurdle. Um, it's easy to get people to go one to 1.5 grams per kilo. Cause I think that's what most people do without even thinking about it, but the higher protein intakes, I mean, it's just difficult. It's hard. People don't realize, you know, you to think when about they start, it. yeah. When they start doing their dialogues, they're like, wow, I'm, I need 40 more grams before I go to bed. I don't, yeah. I don't know if I want to do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it's hard. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a little bit of like realistic, like compliance thing behind it to, to, yeah. to kind of sum that up. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that we've inspired some of our prototypical endurance athletes <laughs> to consume more, more protein. And then as a lot of the dialogue was centered around training camps and it's It's, this is going to come out in a time of year where a lot of athletes are thinking about these intensified volume periods. Hope it inspires them particularly during the intensified volume periods to look at their pro protein, uh, intakes a little bit more, uh, cautiously and strategically, uh, before we let you go, 
you have to tell people where they can find out and engage with more of the ISSN and more of your work because it is fantastic. It's stuff that I lean on a lot whenever there's something that comes out from your organization. I, I, I know that I can trust the science and the publications that are that are coming out of there because of the degree of scrutiny that you and your colleagues kind of put on them. Where can people go and find out more about this? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, one, I want to plug our conference, which is June 15 to 17. It's in Fort Lauderdale Beach at the Westin. Uh, this is sounds terrible. Local- it sounds like a terrible location. To- <laughs> <laughs> you should go. The beach is quite pretty. Um, <laughs> so we'll, I'll be there. You know, I'll be there. You know, I always say the best place to meet me is at the conference. Um, if you can't make, meet me at the conference, probably the easiest ways to reach me um, would be social media on Twitter. It's Jose Antonio PhD. Um, also, we have an Instagram account. The, it's the ISSN. It's the underscore ISSN. Um, that might be the probably the easiest way to find me. But um, yeah, just I always tell people keep on lookout for new publications. Um, we're presenting some data um, at the ISSN conference. One of it, one of them is on protein. The others are oddly enough on, uh, um, on I guess stimulants, pre workout type stimulants, see how it affects cognition and things like that. So my research agenda now, we still do protein stuff, but we're branching out into what I call sports neuroscience stuff, things that affect cognition in the brain and whatnot. But um, I do want to recommend for your athletes, uh, for people who have a hard time with protein, I had a conversation with a gentleman, one of my good friends at the University of Arkansas, perhaps as a substitute for whole protein like whey, they could consume the essential amino acids. Mm. And I'm sure if you go on Amazon.com, you could find EAA concoctions. So if you get the essential amino acids, gram for gram, if you did 20 grams of essentials versus 20 grams of whey, 20 grams of essentials will give you much more bang for the buck. And it's probably easier to consume because it's it's not quite as thick as most yeah. whole protein. So I would recommend that if, if, and I'm sure some of them don't taste good, but I think the flavoring is getting better. But the essential amino acids might be one way for them to get all the amino acids that are needed for recovery. So, so I would, I would highly recommend that. And um, again, if you know, Jason, if you, if you, if any, you of any athletes need any information on sports nutrition, you know where to reach me. I'm in South Florida. I'm not sure. Where are you, by the way? I'm in Colorado. We're going to hit you up whenever we bring supplements back on board, though. Uh, you know, I had a great conversation with Brady Homer over at examine.com uh, just about the whole supplement arena more than anything right. else and trying to educate the the listeners just on how that arena, how people play in that arena more than anything else. I really want to get to the a lot of what you and your colleagues work uh, uh, is on and what use cases are the best for what types of sports supplements when the, when can they go well and when can they be effective and when do they go awry and it's just a big waste of money and time or be a negative which we're starting to see yeah. some of that more and more in the supplement industry where things are promoted that can actually be a net negative either for health and or performance actually no it's funny you bring that up i had a, a conversation with a gentleman to talk about the antioxidants mm-hmm. if you go back 10 20 yep. years the antioxidants yeah, yeah we need to take them take vitamin e take this take that yeah. and now we know hmm, maybe that's not a good thing because it might inhibit mitochondrial biogenesis mm-hmm. and in fact get your antioxidants from food so that was one where it went from hey you should take it it's like whoa let's, yep. let's rewind it, it looks like maybe you guys you know unless you want to mess up your mitochondria well, uh, stay away at, from the anti- once again coming from dallas you can appreciate this. I was an intern, a very, a very, very remedial intern at that. 
for a very short period of time at the Cooper Aerobic Center uh, oh, in Dallas, cool. Texas. So a lot of that original antioxidant research was 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 done by by Dr. Cooper. So seeing that full circle, of course, of, across the course of my entire the entirety of my career, this is when I was a freaking teenager. Um, <laughs> has, has, it's actually been kind of interesting to to actually watch unfold and. So, so anyway, to your, to, to your point, I hear what you're saying, that it is something that is another thing that has come full circle. Cool. Very cool. Well, hey, Jason, it's been a pleasure. Um, let me know when you upload the show. Uh, you know, I'll share it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for your time again. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Jose for coming on the podcast today. And more importantly, Thank you, Jose, for the impact that you have had on me, other coaches out there, athletes and sports nutritionists alike that have all taken some sort of guidance from your work over the years and the work that the ISN, ISSN has done. For those of you out there that want to learn more about the International Society for Sports Nutrition, go ahead and check out the links in the show notes. There's a wealth of information out there and keep track of what they do and what they come out with. There's always new stuff that they are doing and stuff that is valuable for endurance athletes and athletes really of all types. If you like this podcast, please take a moment, go into your podcast player of choice and share it with your friends and family. There's no better way to show your friends and your training partners that you care about them than to share good information. And I hope there's good information contained within this podcast that you and your training partners will provide valuable. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails. 